everyone. Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. And if this is your first time joining us, thank you for being here. We are a married couple of four children, ages 12, 11 through 4. We're coming into birthday season here next week, and so ages are starting to change a little bit. And we don't plan our conversations. Um, We have them about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and surviving parenthood and other such endeavors that adults do. Surviving Adulting. Mm-hmm. It's our new podcast, Surviving Adulting with J.R. and Molly. <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> Just barely surviving adulting. Um, so there you are. Welcome yeah, to our weekly conversation. Kind of about it. Have we talked much this last week? No, we haven't talked hardly at all in the last week. I have yeah. not been feeling super great. No, Today's the first not. day my brain feels actually clear. Whatever had caused brain fog on me for the last couple COVID. of days has lifted, and I feel like I can think and speak a little bit more clearly. COVID causes and everything. It, yes. I'm still randomly blaming everything on COVID. Coughing up phlegm from July. August. Early August. I guess late July. Yeah, late you July. started coughing when we were in Kalispell. But we never heard from Kim, so apparently they were fine. Yeah. She never said anything about it. I wanted to make another trip out there, but now they're talking about... Um, we don't have any time. And now they're talking about uh, the they? OPEC cutting Who's they? oil. I don't know. They, the people in the world. Oh. Talking about OPEC cutting the oil and it's going to send gas prices soaring again. They never really came down from last time, so I don't know how much soaring can we can get. They can they can soar more. Ten dollars a gallon. Trust me, they can we're soar. We're all walking. A lot more, and we're not eating because farmers can't afford to ship their food to us. Hmm. Fair. Yeah. How's our supply of grain and meat? Uh, I mean, it would get us through the winter. You need to you need to go hunting though. No. Um, speaking of supply of grain and meat, we just finished reading a novel, a uh, historical fiction called Almost Home for school. And it's about a, a girl whose family was actually on the Mayflower. They, historical records have shown that her family fled England with a group of pilgrims who went to Holland and then they bought the ship, the Speedwell, which was not seaworthy, and they ended up having to leave that ship in England. And that the problems with that ship are actually why they arrived in New England so late in the year, is because they spent months trying to fix it in, in England after they sailed it from Holland to England. And then they took off, and the Speedwell started taking on water, so both ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell, turned back. And then they spent more time and money... Uh, fixing it, money that they could have used to buy food to put on the Mayflower for all the extra passengers who got off of the Speedwell onto the Mayflower. And anyway, so that's part of the reason that they were all starving and only half of them survived the first winter there and why they got Hmm. arrived there so late. They actually didn't set foot in Cape Cod, I think it was December, when they finally landed and didn't have time to... All the animals had gone into hibernation or had flown south, so they couldn't hunt animals for food and whatnot. But I always find that reading historical fiction, for me anyway, because it feels so real and accessible, it cements that time period in our brains and a real understanding of what happened. And it's easier to pin dates and other historical figures onto that piece of fiction that we had read that made it come alive to hmm. us. I was just I I quickly jumped on the internet to see if I could see what the speedwell looked like cuz just like I wonder what it looks like. Land on the Wikipedia page. They don't really have any renderings on Wikipedia, but the reverse of the $10,000 bill shows a scene from Robert Walter Weir's painting Speedwell. He was commissioned by the United States Congress in 1837 to paint a historical depiction of pilgrims. 
And part of that painting is on the back of the $10,000 bill. Interesting. I have never seen a $10,000 bill, and I doubt if I ever will. I don't know. Given the way inflation's going, that might become the new uh, $100. $100 bill. That's mm-hmm. true. I mean, you you say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but that's you think about places like Zimbabwe and Venezuela mm-hmm. that in Brazil. the governments have gone nuts printing money and could happen. Germany during World War II could happen. I just don't. Could happen anywhere. But I just don't. I, the hardship that those people went through, or even, again, I know I mentioned the Little House on the Prairie family a lot, but the hardship and the deprivation that they went through makes me think that we could survive a lot more than we think we could and be a lot more resourceful than we think we could. But we'd also have to be a lot smarter than I think most of us are right now. Let's be honest. There's, in terms of... Well, in terms of using the food that we have. Oh, yeah. Uh, the amount of food waste, even that our family produces, is... I get a little annoyed when like, I, like I'm, I think about food wasting food, and I'm like looking at just random little things, leftovers, going, I need to save that and use it for something. Yeah. You know. Um, the, the interesting... Eggs. So there's a, there's a guy I follow on Instagram who actually just published a cookbook about using leftovers because she hates food waste the funny thing is the idea of publishing a cookbook about using leftovers or using food scraps and just minimizing waste is it so individual and particular to each family it's hard for me to imagine getting too many ideas from somebody else right because you may not make the same thing i mean right you could call it chef's surprise every thursday i just mix into a giant bowl anything left over in the fridge that's disgusting into a, or i put it into a casserole that's and stick disgusting it in the oven. yeah yeah the the pilgrims actually when they lived in holland had a a meal similar to that, which was an iron kettle over the pot, and they called it hodgepodge, which was just throwing things into the iron kettle, and whatever came out was called hodgepodge, mm-hmm. and that was your meal. So it would we could make it sound fancy and call it hodgepodge. Um, but, well, I mean, even today, I was out in the garden, and I saw some dill that your mom had planted that had gone to seed, and I thought, you know, rather than just sitting, leaving it here... Why don't I take the seeds and sprinkle them in the area of ground that I know we will be watering consistently next year and between the current garden and the greenhouse and maybe we'll get free dill coming up. Who knows? Mm -hmm. We'll see. But it's worth a shot. Yeah. Just things like that, even utilizing seeds and not repurchasing things. But I think that a lot of us and I'm pointing the finger primarily at myself, could be a lot better at using what we have before we start worrying too much about deprivation. I'm always astounded at the amount. I'm going to just look it up really quickly. The amount of food waste per person every year. I feel like the whole, I don't know, the whole industry, the whole food industry, how we've commercialized kind of like just done everything, like just doesn't help. You know, right. I mean, I understand that a lot of it's by necessity as things get more urban. You can't you can't be a sustenance farmer. No, know, but also, but. no, you can't. But also um, the amount of food that grocery stores throw away because it's not right. perfect. Yeah, because people won't purchase. And I'm this person. I will put if I'm paying for a bag of apples. I will choose my own apples and I'll make sure none of them have any bruises on them because if I'm paying $2 a pound for apples, I want good ones. I don't want to waste them when, by the time I get home. But then there's half of an apple that's perfectly good and could be uh, given away to homeless people or to people who are worse off economically. You know, somebody who can't mm-hmm. afford right. healthy food for their family could certainly cut a brown spot off of an apple and use it. It could be fed to animals. Um, Addie's sister has a cow and some pigs and she, Addie was telling me that she goes to natural grocers and they actually set aside their fresh produce waste that they can't sell so that people like her can come get it for their animals and oh, she cool. said yes it is cool and I think there's kind of a, an agreement an unspoken agreement you're not going to take this food and eat it but a lot of it would be totally fit for human consumption right so anyway that things like that would be would be a really good start if we actually started to have really big problems in our country, which I wouldn't be super surprised if we did. 
I also uh, wouldn't be super surprised if we didn't. You, can't, you don't know the you future. You have no idea. Hard to know. Speaking of conspiracy theories or acting on I'm not taking any notes on what we're talking about. I'm going to have a hard time coming up with show notes after this. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Speaking talking so, to myself. So, you guys, I had I got called for jury duty on Monday morning. And as I was checking online for the status of the case, well, I guess do all the fun things. All the, it was it was it was fun. I'll tell you what. Uh, every case that was scheduled <laughs> that day, except mine, was canceled like four or five days beforehand. Mine was still on, so I had to show up at the. It was it used to be the Shrine Auditorium where they would have concerts and owned by the Shriners and the Masons, and they've. I, they must still own it. The building was for sale for a while, but it's now being used for big... The city is using the building, so I don't know if the city bought it. Occasionally, they well, I mean, they used to hold concerts there way back, but... Used to, and this, the shrine would always bring in a circus there every year, but mm-hmm. they haven't done the circus. Was that where there was... I don't know. There might still be a circus there. Anyway, I show up there, and I'm five minute, three minutes early, and the entire auditorium is full of chairs that are socially distanced, spaced out three or four feet away from each other. we still need that in this day. And I, there were a couple people wearing masks. Mm -hmm. I sit down in row eight out of 10 and these rows were 10 chairs across. So 10 by 10, there were, there was seating for a hundred people there all in the jury pool for this one jury and all but about eight chairs were full. And then they called roll and when when proceedings finally started, they called roll, and there were eight people who weren't there, and they were all written up as being in contempt of court for not showing up because it's not just your civic you privilege; go. it's also your civic duty. Yes, and you get it's it, yeah it it's the classic like you know it's it's your if it's your privilege, but we're going to punish you if you don't come. Like paying taxes. How does this work? I don't know. That would be interesting to talk to a libertarian or someone about that because if if you if there wasn't some sort of consequence for not showing up, nobody's going to show up for you're going to get Karens showing up for jury duty, and you're going to have a whole jury full of Karens. I mean, you got you have to make it. Yeah. I, I, anyway, the entire thing, you guys. I have been called for jury duty probably I kid you not a dozen times in the last ten years. And every single time, I have had a nursing baby. And so I write back, I'm sorry, I can't come because I have a nursing baby that I would have to bring with me because I never bottle fed any of my babies. And so I've gotten out of it every time I've been called, probably several times a year during each time that I had a nursing baby. And so I show up this time and I was actually, I had a, I had a professor in college who, Dr. Holmes, my Latin professor, she actually Greek and Latin. She was this very interesting woman at Hillsdale College. She was one of the only very liberal, openly liberal professors. And she was utterly brilliant. She had her PhD from Harvard and she was very quirky, had all these very quirky genius mannerisms. And my, I feel like it was Greek, Greek one got canceled for a week because she was on jury duty for a murder trial. And it was the murder of a child and both parents were under suspicion of it. And both parents blamed the other person and the police had not been able to gather sufficient evidence that it was one parent versus the other, but they decided to just pin it on one of them and hope that the charges stuck. Well, even fast forward to where I'm at, the, of the 98, 92 people who showed up, they called 27 names forward for jury pool questioning I was juror, prospective juror number three. So I was sitting in chair number three, holding a laminated card that said number three that I had to hold up every time they called on me to speak. I was four feet from the prosecutor's desk. And 
we got this very long lecture about what does reasonable doubt mean. And I have never thought that closely that about what it means that so you have to be able to convict someone beyond a reasonable doubt. And she said, here's an example of reasonable doubt. You leave, you leave your house to go to dinner. It's light outside, but you know, it's going to be dark when you get home. So you leave lights on inside your house. You come home and everything in your house is dark. And you look out your window, everything that you left on is dark. And you look out your window and you see that there's no lights on in your neighbor's homes either. And you go into the living room and you try to flip on a lamp and it doesn't work. And then you try to flip on a couple of light switches and they don't work. And you go to open your refrigerator and the light doesn't come on when you open the fridge. What can you, what can you conclude beyond a reasonable doubt? You can conclude that your neighborhood has a power outage. You don't have to walk into every room and flip every single light switch and try every single appliance. A case study of a reasonable number of things has led you to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that you and your neighbors just doing a survey of looking at your neighbors has led you to can has led you to the reasonable conclusion that you are out of power. And she said the other part of beyond a reasonable doubt is that you would make life-altering choices based on that reasonable, based on that beyond a reasonable doubt. So she actually called on, or actually the defense was talking about reasonable doubt, and she called on someone and said, if you had a significant other who was on a ventilator and seemed to be brain dead, what sort of things would you have to do to be sure of in order to pull the plug on them? I don't even know that I could answer that question. Well, she said, whom would you consult? What sort of evidence would you need? And she said, the level of gravity of a jury making a decision in a criminal case is this high. Your level of Mm -hmm. reasonable doubt has to be so beyond this that if you even held a glimmer of suspicion that this person was going to come out of their coma, that you would not pull the plug on them. So not only... You know, in the instance of a power outage, it's not just that you, you know, you don't have any usually huge life altering decisions to make in the case of a power outage. You wait an hour and the power comes back on. But the the gravity of the decision is such you can't take it back. A jury can't take back their decision. It has life altering consequences for the person who is on trial. So those two combination of things I had never actually really thought about. And going back to my college professor, she came back from this week of being out of class and gave us a fairly significant civics lecture that, let's see, that was 2000. Now everyone's going to be able to guess exactly how old I am, but it doesn't really matter. I, 2000, 2000? I think that was the year 2000, maybe 1999. I can't remember when I started Greek. She she came back and she describes the case to us. A child was killed in their home through abuse or something. Uh, neither parent confessed. Both parents blamed the other. Um, and and we did not convict the one who was on trial because we did not believe that the that the state that the prosecutors proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it was this parent. She said, now, do we know that it was one or the other? Yes. Beyond a reasonable doubt, we know for certain that one of these two parents killed the child. But they did not prove sufficiently for the jury that it was this parent over and above this parent. And she said, is it an atrocious grief and loss of justice for that dead child and the people that loved him or her that nobody will be brought to justice for killing this child absolutely it is horrific that nobody will be brought to justice for this but as a jury following the law we could not conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that it was the dad over the mom or whatever the charges were and that has stuck with me that my as as college kids we were all like well somebody has to pay for it just convict somebody and she said no 
it has to be the right person. And the burden is on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was that person. So that being sitting there in the room made me think of that case and how at least in in theory not always in practice how high the bar is for proving wrongdoing in american jurisprudence which historically the american legal system in a lot of ways is based on the judeo-christian ethic and the not the ceremonial but the moral and civil laws that we get in the old testament these were god-fearing men who laid out the laws that they wanted Americans to follow when they came to the new land and were in this strange new world of creating their own laws, so to speak. And now we have a lot more of them. And we not do get rid of the old ones. And we do not execute them perfectly. Um, or at all. I was, I was there with one of, in the, now let me think, I think, Prospective juror number nine was a woman who teaches Taekwondo at the dojo that we go to. And I don't interact with her a ton, but they have their grandchildren with them for a couple weeks every summer. And Elise, our kid who will make friends with a wall, uh, of course, is friends with the granddaughter who's their age, her age. And they, she'll, the instructor will. You know, if she happens to be there when they're there, she'll have Elise send her a selfie saying hi and things like that. But she and Elise will make friends with a wall. <laughs> she will. She she does. That's funny. She anyway. Um, so she was asked. Not they asked if anyone there had very strong feelings for or against law enforcement, and she raised her hand and said, "I do a lot of training for a local." police officers and I feel very strongly that they need to be supported and that they're men and women who work hard and they have a lot of integrity and she after we neither of us made the cut so they chose 12 jurors yeah but you threw down well I didn't I'll get to that I'll get to that because that was my segue in the beginning speaking of conspiracy (laughs) theories but anyway so so that instructor laid into him I didn't lay into him that is that instructor expressed and they said If you were listening to the testimony of an average citizen versus a testimony of a law enforcement officer, whose testimony would you favor? And she said, probably the the police officer. Yeah. Just because I think that they work really hard and they've been trained. And and then the defense kind of went after her like, well, aren't they human? And she's like, well, of course they're human and they make mistakes. And, you know, the adrenaline and emotions can get in the way of their judgments. But... By and large, Wait a minute, who's on trial here? Yeah. Oh, I Jurors? actually, I actually had to remind myself several times. Like this, it doesn't matter what you think. You are not on trial here because <laughs> it was, it was pretty nerve wracking. The guy sitting next to me, who, excuse me, if you're a computer programmer, he looked like a computer programmer. He was kind of pasty he white. He was and very large and pasty like he white. Lived in his mother's basement. No, no, he was very skinny, very skinny. Oh, like he looked like he didn't eat much. Like he, you know, he's the sort of guy who gets so caught up in his computer programming that he forgets to eat lunch sort of person. And maybe you're getting computer programmers confused with gamers. Maybe. I don't know. He, <laughs> gamers he, usually eat, but it's crap food. He was, he, I mean, he, he was well kept. He, did, he wasn't sloppy at all. He just looked nerdy and kind of pasty and didn't look like he exercised a lot. And he dripped sweat the entire time. I mean, he's number two. So was it warm in there? It was not. And most most of the women were wearing sweaters, myself included. And I didn't ever have the urge to take my sweater off. I whenever you told me this story, I assumed he was uh, warm. No, he was a fat guy. No, no. How funny. He was a nervous guy. And he had beads of sweat. He had beads. Because they made you feel like you were on trial. They sat there and they would just look at you and ask you, you know, number three, Mrs. Friesen, what do you think about redacted documents? (laughs) Which is exactly (laughs) what happened. So she starts to, she explains what a redacted document is. You know, according to the law, there's information that could be in legal documents that are pertinent to the case, but there might be information that you might not be 
need to or get to see. And so the docu- that information will be redacted. What Number three, Mrs. Friesen, what do you think about redacted documents? And kind of, I had a mild headache that got worse <laughs> yesterday, and I'd been in a brain fog, and I was tired, and... I said, uh, I don't feel great about redacted documents. And she kind of looked at me surprised. Well, why is that? And I said, because every time I've seen a redacted document over the last three years, it's been redacted to the point where it's meaningless. They take all the information out as though they have something to hide. And I'm thinking about all the Freedom of Information Act things about COVID and about the Mueller investigation and about Hillary Clinton's files and things. Anytime you see a redacted document... All of the interesting, all of the interesting facts that would actually make mean a something. case and mean something to the American public have been deleted out or blacked out. <coughs> so anyway, of all the 27 people, I'm probably the only one who's enough of a conspiracy theorist that I've actually read well, redacted finish, documents. Finish, yeah, finish telling that story. Well, though. so then she says, "Well, what if Judge Harris?" And she points at the judge running the courtroom proceedings. What if Judge Harris approved the redactions? And I was like, I, I mean, I'd like to think I'd give him the benefit of the doubt, but would I get to know why the information had been redacted? And she goes, no. And I was like, I, I'm sorry. And I wasn't super, I wasn't super expressive. And I was trying to think of ways to not seem totally crazy and I couldn't. <laughs> I could not think of a way to say that in a way in the moment that didn't seem completely crazy. And she did not call on me for a single question after that. So even though I'm sitting there thinking, I'm, I think I'd like to think that I'm on your side. I'm a clear thinking individual who values the facts and it values the American just judicial system. And I I value that police but I don't trust law anybody. enforcement, but I also don't <laughs> trust the government. Um, so anyway, I'm pretty sure that's why I didn't get chosen for the jury, which is fine because I was there from 8:30 to 12:30 anyway, and it was a domestic violence case, so it was project- projected to go through the rest of the day on Monday and then Tuesday and Wednesday. I can't imagine what kind of information in. Uh, would be redacted. Domestic violence case would be redacted. I, apparently, there's some. I can't imagine either, which is kind of why it made me feel suspicious. But anyway, but I do. When I see blacked out things on government documents, I get a little twitchy. Um, well, yeah, because they're they're protecting. They're somebody. totally hiding something. And even in a in a case like that, where I'm sure it would be fairly innocuous information for an average citizen. I'm, I still couldn't, in good conscience, say I feel great about redacted documents. I love I trust them. I don't you. have to know anything. I trust you completely with what information you're going to hold, withhold from me. Also, I got some drool on here. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I have not had a chance to do this because we've had a pretty crazy week. But and it's Wednesday afternoon for those of you guys who are wondering. But I, it made me the end of that process. I appreciated the civics education that I got there, truly. The things about reasonable doubt, what does that mean? Um, Also, the defense went over and over in asking people questions that were actually an opportunity to lecture us about what it means to be innocent until proven guilty. And she would, like, juror number 20... If if we were to close the trial today and the state has presented no evidence and the defense has presented no evidence, what would your verdict be? And the guy's like, um. And then she called on somebody else and the next person said it would be not guilty because there's a presumption of innocence until guilt has been proved proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden is on the state. And then she said, "My does my client need to need to defend himself uh does he need to testify and you know would you have a problem if my client didn't testify and uh, i kid you not every person was like no i wouldn't have a problem that's his legal right and i'm thinking but i didn't get called on again (laughs) because they had already been counted out but i'm thinking 
it is his legal right, but truthfully, in a case like this, seems a little suspicious. <laughs> if you're not going to get up and give your version of events. <clears throat> I mean, I understand that it's your right. And when I was a kid, probably in high school, I can't remember what this book is, but I have a memory of reading a book. Maybe it was the Scopes Monkey Trial book. What was that? What's the book about that? The Teaching Evolution Anyway, there was a book, and there's this whole parade of kids that get called to testify about something, and every single one of them is trained to plead the fifth, to say, I, de- I refuse to testify on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. I decline to answer on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. And it was this big thing, because this whole classroom of kids all declined to answer on the grounds that they might incriminate themselves. But pretty much now, if somebody doesn't take the stand, you have to have a really good reason not to where it feels like an admission of guilt. And but no, everybody knew the right answer was no. He's not obligated to take the stand to defend himself because she knew if she asked you, you'd be like, "Well, seems awfully suspicious, doesn't I know. it?" <laughs> I mean, I would like to think that I would give him the presumption of innocence, but right. I mean, depending on what information is presented by the prosecution, kind of would be nice to not hear you just lay into the wit the prosecution's witnesses as a defense attorney. And based on her demeanor, she was actually the defense attorney. She she was this very alternative looking, doesn't even surprise me at all that she's a defense attorney for things like domestic defender. I, I don't know if she's a public defender, probably, but she just if you're a stereotyper like me, maybe you can picture the sort of person who is a public defender and very good at it. She by the time so the prosecution had I don't know, 30, 40 minutes to question the jury pool. And then we got a 20 minute or 15 minute break during which time the water pressure at the shrine tanked and none of the toilets would flush, which was pretty crazy considering that there were like 50 women using the bathroom all at once. And then the defense had 30 to 40 minutes to, to do their thing. And by the time it got to the defense's time, she not only had every prospective juror's name memorized, she had it paired with the numbers. So the prosecution had this whole file folder of blue and pink sticky notes. So she could at a glance tell if this is male or female. And they were lined up according to where we were sitting. And she had jotted notes down on them because they had a notebook full of the the um, questionnaire that we had filled out um, prior to getting called. So she has this whole thing of sticky notes. The defense gal had zero notes and she had 27 people's last names and numbers memorized as well as relevant information about us that had come out during the prosecution's questioning. So she was brilliant, but I also feel like she uh, asked one gal, would you have a problem? Maybe it was our, the martial arts instructor. Would you have a problem if I, um, really like used strong language in and you felt like I was attacking a law enforcement officer in their in their testimony and I don't know if it was if that was the martial arts instructor or not but anyway she 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 indicated that she was going to be pretty vicious against test witnesses on the wow. stand and um and anyway but you're not going to put your own Defendant on this stand. Anyway, it was liberal leftist woman already. uh, It was. (laughs) It was really interesting. Oh, the other thing that I have not had time to research, but that I really want to was it's a domestic violence case, and she, the defense attorney, would just randomly call on people and say, "What? What's your definition of domestic violence?" And a lot of the definitions that people gave included yelling and she I could tell where she was going with this was her clients had you know maybe had a a violent temper yelled a lot but then he was accused of both domestic violence the charges included both domestic violence as well as violating restraining orders and a number of different restraining orders and because they read us the charges to make sure we understood the nature of the case. And so she was quizzing us on what could you get a restraining order for? Could you get a restraining order just for somebody screaming at you? 
screaming mean words at you. And she cited a couple of the mean words. And I won't say them on here. They were, I mean, they were degrading and vulgar, but not swear words. But she, um, one woman. Sloppy Joe. One woman very clearly felt that any use of those derogatory terms was demeaning and was violence. And she she was very clear on that. And she also did not make the cut. <laughs> but I don't know. Could you be could you be charged with domestic violence without ever actually hurting someone else? If you broke things in the home or if you just screamed at someone so much that they were afraid, does there actually have to be physical assault? And then how do you define violence and assault in the home? Because I know that, you know, you can you can charge someone with assault on the street if they shove you. And it's considered assault or, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what those definitions are. It made me very curious, though, and made me realize how would a, how much you abuse me by yelling and the kids by yelling at us all the time? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> the, I guess my my ultimate takeaway on that was the the people who were called forward the twelve for the jury and then one for the the alternate. <clears throat> um, they were not the people that I expected. Some of them were. There was one guy who it makes a trial great. Had served on a, a jury trial. Had served great. on a murder trial like twenty years ago. And he was chosen for the jury, but so was Mr. Sweaty Programmer next to me. <laughs> I was like, what about him? They barely ever asked him anything. In fact, there were several people chosen. They didn't need to. Who had hardly been asked anything. He's a cracker. There were two women. <clears throat> there's a lot There's a lot of prejudging going on by the way you dress and look in that room. And the way you carry yourself. Mm-hmm. There were two women, which tells me there is a tremendous body of psychology and science behind jury selection and the the prosecution and the defense both seemed to be pretty well versed in it you want people that you can i would guess you would want people that you could easily sway i guess so people who are not people who are like i don't like that the judge would black something out and i couldn't see it yeah i mean to me those are the kind of people you'd want like you want really critical thinking people, but at the same time, you also want people that perhaps you can convince. Because the jury, because in the jury trial, the 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 attorneys are not are not arguing. They're trying to convince the jury. Right, is what they're that's doing. the point. Yeah. But so there were two people that were very interesting to me who had made the cut. Um, it was both women who said that they had been at some point been victims of some sort of assault. And one was domestic violence from a father in the home who is violent to his, her mother growing up. And the other had been sexually assaulted as a teenager. And she made out and got a little carried away and, and she decided she no, didn't like and it. she was bo- both of these women was especially it's this, assault. especially this woman was a very she carried herself like someone who had been wounded and who was very timid and she it was it was surprising to me that the defense had not you know that from what i understand in jury selection the defense and the um the prosecution both get to nix people off so it's not necessarily i want you on the jury but it's i don't want you so you you're left by by default because i really didn't want these people (laughs) but but two women who seemed like they would have been very sympathetic to the victim were not nixed by the defense i guess is what i'm saying it was surprising to me that of the 27 people they they were actually a very sad number of people who raised their hands to say that they had been impacted by domestic violence in their homes. Uh, well, how do you define domestic violence? We well, just talked about this. Well, no, I mean, if it's yelling, we've all been victims. This of domestic was violence. Th- so. This was the prosecution's question. One of the prosecution's first questions, and she said, "If if you have been impacted by you, yourself or in your immediate family by domestic violence, would you please raise your hand?" And 
I would say a third of the 27 people raised their hand, at least, probably closer to half. And then she went to each person and she said, describe your experience. And there was a woman. All 90 people? Nope. No, person number, no, just of the 27. Oh. Person number one, perspective juror number one, said, my father beat my mother and me and all of my siblings growing up. And she, the prosecution then said do you think you could judge a domestic violence case fairly and she said no i have zero tolerance for any violence in a home and the the prosecution must have known that she was she wasn't going to make the defenses cut um because she didn't come back to her a whole lot either and then Almost the very first thing the defense did when she got up was, Judge, I'd like to move that juror number one be removed from the pool. And the judge granted the motion, and then they pulled up some other random dude from. It's so weird to me because I've done, I've been in three, I've been in two jury selection processes, and uh, I've only been selected for jury duty three times. The first time I was actually applying for law enforcement. So. I remember the judge. They came out of the, they came out of their break, and the judge walked up and said, uh, "Juror numbers, whatever, whatever. I don't remember who else was with me, but sounds like this probably isn't the case for you. You're dismissed," is what yeah. the judge said. And then the second one, I had a very lengthy conversation with the judge, counsels, and the defendant in uh, in the judge's chambers because of the nature of the case. Um, they asked jurors with particular histories and then those histories were discussed in the chambers, privately in the chambers. And I don't remember how that all, apparently one of my friends was a co-prosecutor in, worked in the same office as one of the prosecutors on this case. And she said she really, really liked me and wanted me on the case, but. I got kicked off. <laughs> no, you didn't get selected. You got I dismissed. Get, I, I got dismissed. I don't remember. I don't remember why. I just, I honestly don't remember because I remember having a lot, like there was a lot of conversation there. And I just remember like, um, I shared my faith with the whole room. That was fun. I was like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Here's how I like people can't, you know, people can reform. People can change. So I went through this whole thing. Right. And it was just kind of funny. It's like, who knew? So that was my morning there. But um, it's interesting, the process, because, like, you know, they came out, they used your names. They never mm-hmm. used names, and I've ever done it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always juror number two, juror number yeah. four, juror number three. Um, and then, you know, there was, there's not been any moves by anybody to dismiss requests from the judge to dismiss jurors. They just come out of their meeting and go, okay, you're gone, you're gone, yeah, you're there gone. Yeah, no, there was no private meeting. She did that That's totally funny. publicly. But... Um, the others, the, I mean, there were several men who said, my dad beat my mom in front of us growing up, and if we tried to intervene, he would beat us too. There were five, probably, men who made that comment. and Yikes. And, yeah. Um, we've been sheltered our entire lives. So we've spent almost an entire show talking about your jury duty mm-hmm. day. We haven't even gotten to my car wreck. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to anything that I was thinking about talking about either. Sorry, guys. I hope that wasn't extreme. It was. It was maybe a little bit of a civics lesson. Um, I I got <laughs> I most didn't get... boring episode. Too busy to flush has ever. Sorry, done. guys. We've been really <laughs> busy and distracted. I will. Let's. Is it really time to end or wrap up? Uh, we're at forty-ish. Okay. Let's talk about our kids' fear. Because so last night, you guys, I went to pick Jr. I went to pick the kids up from judo so that Jr. could go out with a friend afterwards. And um, less than maybe a mile down the road from judo, I was on a four-lane highway, and I was in the left lane of my two lanes. And the guy on the right lane, he must have just had no idea I was there. I don't. I don't. Just he was clueless. He turned left right into me and I I saw it enough that I there was no there was no oncoming traffic so I tried to veer a little bit and accelerate into oncoming traffic and he he put a pretty good ding in both doors on the passenger side smushed them and there's they still work it wasn't that big of a ding we were probably I don't know 150 200 yards 
past where we had turned. So we hadn't fully reached highway speeds yet. And but he hit me hard enough that the truck, he was in a little like a 1990s Taurus sized vehicle. It was a Buick. Okay. It was a 2000 wasn't as old as the 90s, but it was an old Buick. And the reason JR knows this is because it was close enough. I figured he was, you know, the same distance away from Judo that I was in the opposite direction. And I was like, can you please come back and help me? Because uh, it turned the truck sideways. This little, It was with enough force, as I was saying. It turned the truck sideways, and then I just pulled over to the side. And the first thing I did was call JR and say, can you please come back? And then, and by the time I finished that phone call... The three girls were all crying hysterically, and Titus was sitting there like, I'm hungry. And because he'd just done two and a half hours of judo. And I, I will try to make this a really fast story because this isn't the point. JR, I then called 911 because I was, I was like, JR, I don't even know. Like, who do I call to call the police? It's not an emergency. And he's like, well, call 911 and ask him. Well, first I told her not to call because just, I just swap information and go home. But, the, <laughs> but I, I had a fender bender in a parking lot. I was trying to think when it was, it was before we moved into this house because we had a hailstorm and that car accident, the fender bender in the same year and our insurance rates went up. But um, I, so it was like 2014, 2015. I don't know anything ever that happened with that case with the fender bender though. Well, the only thing that happened to it was she and I swapped information cause it's private property and she was very concerned about the kids that were in the car, which I think there were three kids in the car at that point. And then, and she was like, well, I don't see any damage on my car, but let's swap information just in case. And I was like, I don't see any damage in my car cause it was backing up in a parking lot. Well, then her insurance contacts our insurance and they're claiming thousands of dollars worth of damage to the back of her Subaru. And I was like, what? And told the insurance agent my end of the story. And I was like, I cannot imagine. Did anybody have photos? No, I didn't oh. bother with any of that. Cause I didn't, she said there was no damage. Anyway, all that to say, I was like, I would like a police report. I would really like a police report if possible. So I called 911, talked to the dispatcher, and she's like, I'll send someone when there's someone available, which sounded really bad and ominous. So JR texts <laughs> his police sergeant buddy, and his police sergeant buddy's like, yeah, good luck. There have been two shootings, a suicide, an assault case, and there's nine officers on duty in our entire city we're at, city a, we're right at now. a shooting. Everyone's at a single shooting right now. So I made quite a few jokes. I'm like, I'm going to go... I'm going to go do some bad stuff. And he's like, now's right. the time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, they, it turns out, Carly must not have known this, but they had called the officer who came to me. You didn't know it at the time. He had been called onto duty an hour earlier. Because I texted him. She goes, hey, did you, uh, she goes, um, when I texted Harley, he goes, hey, is that, was that, was she on airport road? Because I, the call came out that I think there was a wreck on airport road. Yeah. So anyway, um. All that. JR's parents live with us. His dad came out and got the kids because we had no idea how long we'd been waiting. And then after sitting there for half an hour, JR's like, I'm, I want to go meet with my friends. Why don't you just take the swapped information, take the pictures and go? And I was like, OK, I'll call back a dispatch and call have a call off. And she's like, well, I have an officer on the way. And I was like, well, do you have any idea how far away he is? And she's like, well, he lives in the Heights and he's coming from his house. So, which is the part of town that the wreck was in. So I was like, you know, I would just like to wait. And it was two, like, 20-something guys in the other vehicle. And they very graciously were also scared. And they waited. But, um... And Can I drive home? Yeah, I'm like smashing parts of their car back up so it doesn't like rub the the police officer came and he actually said insurance companies are getting pretty nitpicky about paying out things. So it was he said you you actually want the police report if you can get mm. it, which I was glad that I'd waited and I thanked him for coming off of duty and he was like no I clocked in an hour ago because they had no they needed people <laughs> so and but he was he would clocked in an hour earlier than he he was supposed to be on shift probably anyway. just hung out of home and then he had the same last name as somebody that our kids do judo with and it's the uncle uh he and his brother are both police officers anyway that's all extraneous information i we talked last week and we got some great feedback on our telegram channel about dealing with our second born who is having a lot of trouble sleeping at night out of because of fear and we have a 
a home alarm system and the fire alarm went off the first day of school and we couldn't get it to turn off and it woke everybody up and kind of she struggled with fear and falling asleep before that but that was the point at which it really exacerbated the now what if there's a fire and you know anyway the having the fire alarm triggered something in her about what if there's a fire how would it all the things and so she doesn't like to fall asleep or can't and I just knew last night the added fears and it wasn't a concrete fear because it nobody was hurt nobody the car is drivable it wasn't even this it wasn't a bad wreck by any means but this deeply unsettling it reminded me actually when I was in middle school Somebody came into church during youth group and stole all of the coats out of the coat closet. And, you know, it's just this everyone's down in the gym and somebody came in and literally cleared out the coat closet. And it was the middle of winter. So there were a lot of nice coats, winter coats. And who knows what the person was going to do with them. But it felt very violating, even being having something stolen, not out of your home. And, but something that's yours and it's not priceless by any means, but it just felt very violating. And I think that was the impact that the wreck had on Lily, that, and on Elise also, it, it felt, it just shook their sense of, oh, we just drive places and it's always fine. And something totally random can happen and it's it's scary it's disconcerting it shakes your sense of normalcy and of security and predictability and so I just knew that we were going to have trouble falling asleep last night and so I told the girls look we're just going to make a big nest of blankets on the playroom floor and I will lie down with you guys on the floor for as long as it takes for you to fall asleep and oh another thing we've been doing you guys I don't know can we share music links I actually can on YouTube with you. There's a there's a. Um, you can put whatever link you want in Telegram too. Well, no, I'm thinking oh, Apple show. Music. Uh, yeah, you can share an Apple Music. It's just link. not, not going to do a lot of have, people any good. Not everybody's going to have Apple Music. There's an there's an album that I've been playing to my kids for years called Scripture Lullabies, and the first song in it is "Be Still," and it's not straight out of Scripture, but it's. It's kind of like the message, Eugene Peterson's adaptation of Bible verses. So it's very recognizable as the Bible verse, actually more recognizable than the message as a Bible verse. But it's not just you wouldn't use it for straight scripture memory. So there's a Philippians 4, 6 one that says, do not worry about anything, but in everything, tell God what you need and thank God for all he has done and the peace of God will be with you or something like that is the Philippians four song. And there's one about be still and just all the reasons to be still and to trust God and to quiet your heart. So I've for the last week or so, when Lily's had trouble sleeping, I've just put that on repeat on the iPad because a lot of people on our telegram mentioned how important scripture memory is and hiding verses in your heart and then also the love of music and so encouraging kids and adults to pray scripture uh um joshua was mentioned you know do not be afraid be strong and courageous for the lord is your god is with you wherever you go Mm -hmm. this my struggle with lily is she is not capable of or doesn't when she gets spooled up to a certain point she doesn't exercise self-control enough to take those thoughts captive. And so exhorting her to pray scripture or just to pray continually so that the, the bad thoughts don't come in and take over. She just won't. When she gets to a certain point, she just lies there and cries and wails Mm -hmm. and doesn't take those thoughts captive and submit them to the care and the supremacy of God. And so playing this music, I feel like, doesn't always do it, but does it for her so that she doesn't have to take the thoughts captive. She can let that passively wash over her. And hopefully, as it washes over her, it 
washes out at least some of the bad. And it doesn't always work, but I, I turned that on last night. And the other thing about her that I've noticed just for the last couple of times that she's had an episode of I Can't Fall Asleep Because I'm Scared is she likes to have physical contact. So last night I was lying on the floor probably three feet away from her and eventually she scooted close to me and she's got a death grip on my arm. And I was like, well, this isn't going to work because I'm never going to be able to sneak away because I've actually done this where I fall asleep and I let her be holding onto me or something. And then when I go to move, like she has this subconscious death grip and when she feels me moving she wakes up and is like you can't leave me so I told her last night I said I will rest my hand on your back or on your leg or something and you will know that I am here but you cannot hold on to me <laughs> she she tried to sneak her hand out a couple times to hold on to my arm or something and or, or to my hand and I was like you cannot hold on to me I will physically rest my hand on you so you have contact with me you're getting physical comfort uh, because she does a couple other people mentioned does she have comfort items and she has a blanket that she holds up to her face and sniffs on and the smells of it uh, comfort her somehow and she so she's got that blanket um, but uh, she she was awake till about 11:30 even with all of that and she which I didn't I didn't get home until a little after 10 by the time the police officer had come in and finished his report. And so the kids went to bed really late, but she was, I wasn't home too late for that. Too. No, she was up for another hour and a half after the other kids fell asleep. And she at one point was like, I, I, I'm not even afraid of anything. I just feel afraid. It's not even a, an identifiable thing that she can say she's afraid of. She just feels afraid and I, I was like, yeah, I, I actually get that. You get so amped up. I didn't say that to her right. in the moment. But I get that. You get so amped up and your nervous system is on such high, um, high alert that you don't have to have a, an identifiable thing that you're afraid of. You just feel anxious and afraid in general. And, and I, you know, again, that the sense of being violated and having your norms shaken even in a very minor traffic accident I think did that to her but I was like you know I get it just keep doing your deep breathing and I'm here with you you know not gonna put pressure on you right now so I didn't get to do all of the research and reading that I wanted to about jury duty um, definitions and whatnot because I was just trying to be present with her last night good job mom last night anyway <laughs> uh that's that's i mean i could talk about more but we're gonna bore people to death for an hour and a half instead of an hour like normal <laughs> all right guys if you like what you've heard um cool surprise um <laughs> you can send us a note on our website www.toobusytoflush.com or tb, the number 2f.com tb2f.com We've got to send a postcard option if you scroll down the page there. The other option is you could send us, you could uh, swing by and click the link in the show notes and come by and visit us on our Telegram group. We've got the link for the Telegram group in the show notes along with any other relevant items. I don't think we mentioned too much today, but um, we'll include those in the show notes too. And if you didn't like us, well, then you never have to listen to us again. So thanks for staying with us this long. We will be hopefully back next week um, at some point. Yep, at some point. It's it's kind of a weird, we got some weird scheduling, travel things going on right now, but should be able to figure it out. So anyway, cool. Thanks for listening. Take care, you guys. Bye.